This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Well, are you guys ready to study God's Word this morning? It's a good answer. We've been looking at a series this fall called Hard Questions. And we've been looking at some hard questions because I bet you have some hard questions you know, every one of us is inquisitive at nature, right? It began when you first started able to speak. And when you, once you had the ability to speak, you asked mom and dad hard questions, um, like what happened to the dinosaurs, right? Uh, or our favorite question, right, as kids is why? And if perhaps some of you, if you have gotten a little bit too old to remember that, just ask some of our new parents in the room, and they will tell you they hear the word why all the time. I bet moms and dads in this room wish that if they had $1 for every time they heard the word why, they could go ahead and pay for their college education for their kids uh, in 15 years from now. However, I digress. We like to ask questions. And you know, God is not intimidated by our questions, and He's not offended by our questions. And so we've sought to answer some of those really difficult questions not, that not only do we ask spiritually to try to find resolution in our hearts about spiritual matters, but there are just some really hard questions that our culture, our friends, our neighbors, our family members, uh, that they are asking. When you read the newspapers, when you're reading blogs, when you're reading Facebook posts, when you watch the news, there are real serious questions that we are asking as human beings, especially here in our country and our state where we live. And so we've looked at some theological questions this fall, and we've looked at some social questions as well. But we're going to recognize that even the social questions we're asking are ultimately theological questions. And God has some real-life practical answers to those questions. And so today we turn our attention to the very sensitive subject of race. We turn our subject to race and racial reconciliation. When you look at poll after poll in American life, an overwhelming majority of Americans believe that race relations in America are getting worse and not better which is very ironic, seeing that we are now uh, 50 to 60 years after the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s. And, and what we're recognizing is that legislation doesn't always take care of all problems. And we're finding that governmental solutions don't always answer every problem facing mankind. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to dive into some texts of Scripture to see so how, do the, how does the Bible speak on racial issues? Because right now as we're looking out upon our land, and especially I know that the presidential election has, has just really taken uh, the scab off of a lot of wounds, and they're exposed now, and it's almost like some are just pouring salt in those wounds. Uh, people have questions, people have concerns, people have fears. If we're not careful, even in the church, we can uh, come to the posture of us versus them. We use phrases like those people or they're not like us. And by the way, I want you to understand this morning as we begin our time together, I want us to see that we're talking to everybody here. This isn't a message to white people to try to understand better the plights of the minority. This isn't just a message to show why the minority is always right and the white man is always wrong. This is a message to show and expose all of our hearts before God this morning. Because God's word doesn't speak to the majority in order how to take care of the minority. It doesn't just speak to the minority's cause. It speaks to all of us. And you're going to see this as we go through today. And so in asking the question, do all lives really matter? This is coming directly from the culture. And it's coming from the culture because after a series of high-profile police shootings in America in 2014 and 2015, there was a movement in America that started, hashtag Black Lives Matter. And it was really a reaction to the fact that in this community there was a lot of hurt and there was a lot of angst and there's still a lot of anxiety in that community because of the injustices and even atrocities that they see continually happening to their children and to their brothers and to their, their dads and their uncles. Well, then in reaction to that, now it's political, right? And now so every group wants to react to that. And so then we had hashtag all lives matter. Well, that didn't work out so well for Governor Martin O'Malley as he was running for president. 
Because he was at a forum that was uh, filled, and the, the audience was filled with members of the African American community. And he was asked, Do you agree with the term Black Lives Matter? And because he's running for president of all United States and all people, Governor O'Malley responded, I believe that all lives matter. Black lives matter, Latino lives matter, white lives matter, Asian lives matter. And he was basically booed off the stage and was forced to recant that and to apologize for saying all lives matter. Then in response to this, the police line, the police line, the, 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 the unions and, and the supporters of the police came up with hashtag, hashtag blue lives matter. And so now anytime we want to uh, pick out our demographic, our race, our people group, and we want to give advocacy, we now say basically blank lives matter. Now as Christians, we've got to come back from all of this. And ask the question, well, wait a minute. Do black lives matter? Do blue lives matter? Do white lives matter? Do Latino lives matter? What about Asian lives? What about the young? What about the old? Um, what, what about the rich? What about the poor? We're going to see from Scripture today that the Scriptures challenge our sociology. The Scriptures challenge our ideas of right and wrong, and the scriptures challenge our political posturing. And what I hope that you see this morning, this is my goal, this is my prayer, this is what I've been praying all week for this morning, is that we would see as followers of Jesus Christ, what Jesus is leading us to do is to be a people, to be a group on earth, his church, who's charting out not the right way and not the left way, not the conservative way or the liberal way. But what God is doing is he's calling us to chart a third way, a way that is totally transcendent of every one of our people groups and our segments and our tribes that we have on planet Earth. Are you ready to dive in and see this? Let's look at biblical truths regarding human dignity, race, and reconciliation. Because God cares about this far more than the Republicans do. He cares about it far more than the Democrats do. He cares about it far more than any of your presidential candidates do. And we're going to come away from this this morning prayerfully challenged. And what my other prayer is, is that instead of us filtering the gospel through our political lens we would filter our political lens and our advocacy lenses through the gospel. Number one. <clears throat> Here's the number one biblical truth I want you to see today. Every human life has dignity because of God. Every human life has dignity because of God. Because this is ultimately what's at stake. Racial injustice, racial prejudice is ultimately a human dignity issue. We're really cutting at the heart of human dignity. When someone looks down upon one race as being inferior, or when one race says that we are the superior race, and by the way, throughout human history and even today, it's not just the white man who has been guilty of this. We have to recognize this. Many different races. As a matter of fact, I would say all races at some point in their history or in their development, there has been strands of that superiority complex of thinking somehow that their race is the superior race and other races are the inferior race. But we have to reject this from the standpoint of Scripture because from Scripture, the scriptural standpoint of view these are not ultimately issues of sociology. They're not ultimately social issues. They're human dignity issues. Here's why. If you go to the book of Genesis, the very first page in your Bible, when God creates all of earth and all of the creation, the plant life, the animal life, the stars, the planets, the, uh, Halley's Comet, every aspect of creation where he creates. There is only one 
aspect of creation where he uses this special term called the image of God. And it's creating human beings. In verse 26 of Genesis 1, the Bible tells us this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Three times in those two verses, we see the phrase, in his image. Four times, if you would include, in his likeness. Now, theologically, we can say a lot of things about this. We can say that we are like God. This is the ultimate answer. We are like God in ways that nothing else in all of creation is like God. We reflect him. We have ingenuity. We have the ability to think morally. We have, uh, we have his law literally written on our hearts in much the same way that you reflect your two parents, right? So when you look in the mirror, you see the eyes or you see the funny looking nose, right? Or you see the big or small ears, Right, You can see mom, you can see dad, you can hear them in the way you speak, the way you laugh, the mannerisms that you have. You know, you can just say, that's just, that's Lowy right there, you know, or that, that's a Campelli, right? I mean, we just, we, we see our mom and our dad when we look in the mirror. And the reason is because we are created, we are born in the likeness of our mom and dad. In that sense, we could say we are created, we are born in the image of our parents because we are like them and we represent them. In much the same way, we as human beings, when we look in the mirror, we are not God, but we are like him. Now, we don't know all the ways of what that means. We'll know it one day when we see him face to face. But the scriptures say that we are made in his image. It's why human beings matter to God more than any other aspect of human, life, of human create, I mean of, of creation. Human beings matter, all of us. Let's look at Psalm 139. Here's where you start seeing a little bit more depth of our uh, being created in the image of God and our personal dignity, our human dignity. In Psalm 139, we learn the very intricate ways in which our God created us. In verse 13 of Psalm 139, we read this, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. We see the very personal nature of creation. We see the very personal way in which God created you and fashioned you in your mother's womb. And so when you put this passage together with Genesis 1, 26 and 27 of being made in the image of God, here you have the foundation of human dignity. You have the foundations of why all lives matter. You have the foundation of why every human life, regardless of pigment of skin or Language which you may speak, you have equal dignity before your creator God. Now, this is why, as Christians, we are advocates for, passionate advocates for, human life across the board. Christians are known as pro-life people. And normally when we think of pro-life causes, we think about the infant in the womb, the embryo, the fetus. And we think about uh, reproductive rights when we're thinking about abortion. And Christians usually have strong stances on that. But it's not just because we're traditionalists. It's not just because Christians like to identify with one party or the other. This isn't about power on human earth. This is about meshing 
our convictions and our politics and our sociology with what Scripture says about human life. And so we're passionate about life in the womb, but we should also be very passionate about life outside the womb. Christians should be passionate about life issues when it comes to, when it comes to the, the grandmother in the nursing home who doesn't have cognitive ability anymore. We should be passionate about the life regardless of how productive society may deem them uh, for fruitfulness in, in life. If a heart is beating, if there is air, a breath in the lungs, that life has dignity and worth and value. If we're going to be passionate about pro-life in the womb, we have to be passionate about racial injustices. We've got to be passionate about racism. We've got to be uh, and passionately speak out against that. We've got to be passionate about issues of, of the immigrant and the foreigner, those who have been displaced, those who are homeless. Those who are hungry, we could go on and on and on, fill in the blank with issues of injustice or issues of social justice. The reason is because the Bible is a very pro-life scripture and God is a very pro-life God. And therefore, Christians are to be a pro-life people, recognizing human dignity at the very core of who we are, not because of constitutional rights, but because of theological truths. I want you to hear this this morning. I love the United States of America. I love the United States Constitution. But your dignity does not come from a human document. Your dignity does not come from the civil rights movement. Your dignity comes from the fact that your creator created you in his image. And that's what motivates us to say the phrase, to say the statement, all lives matter. Secondly, not only does every human life have dignity because of God... Number two, every racial injustice is a result of human sin. Every racial injustice is a result of human sin. When you look at the racist, when you look at uh, racial injustice, it's not just simply because somebody went the wrong way. It's not simply because there is a cultural problem that has to be fixed. There's ultimately a heart problem that needs to be cured. I want to show this to you. I want to, I want to see if I can get you to track with my thinking here. Now, when you look at Genesis 4, now remember Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God says, let us make man in our image. And so he created us in his likeness. And that's what gives us value. Then you look at Genesis 3, the fall happens. And sin enters into the world. Now, what you don't see in Moses' writing of the book of Genesis is you don't just see like chapters and chapters of the downward spiral of human beings. I mean, it changes dramatically immediately in the reading of the text. The fall happens in Genesis 3. In Genesis 4, you have the, the account of Cain and Abel. Two brothers. Jealousy uh, ensues. Rage follows. And then in Genesis chapter 4, verse 8, we see the first murder in the, new, in, the, in the Bible. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. So we see the first instance of murder, yes, but we also see the first instance of fratricide. A brother kills a brother, and it's because of jealous rage. If you follow the track through the uh, book of Genesis, you get to Genesis chapter 9. This is just before God floods the earth. And in Genesis 9, God is reiterating his passion and his heart for the dignity of human life. You begin reading in uh, verse 
Verse 5, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. In Genesis 4, we see fratricide. Genesis 9, we see the, the penalty for homicide. And God actually says that if you take a man's life, your life will be required. Now, he doesn't say this about a cow. It's not to say that I don't like cows. I'm sure that cows are lovely, are lovely animals. I bet they make nice pets. They really make a nice hamburger as well. But it's not that we're anti-cow, and it's not that we're anti-pig. It's not that we're anti-fish or anything like that. It's just that those creatures are not created in the image of God. And so God gives us a carte blanche permission to kill and to eat those animals. But there is a penalty for killing a human being. And God takes it so far to say that the penalty for taking life is to give your own life. Why? Because it's ultimately an affront to God himself. Because not only are you killing a human life, you are killing the image and likeness of God. Now here's where I want to make the connection. Every attempt at taking human life begins ultimately with the devaluing of human life in our hearts. The reason that Cain could kill Abel is because he had dehumanized him in his heart. The reason that we can commit abortion is because we as a society, we have devalued, we have dehumanized the fetus in the womb. The reason that the Nazis could commit genocide is because they had devalued the Jewish person in their hearts. So what I want you to see is that there is a link between fratricide, homicide, infanticide, genocide, those actions of taking human life. I want you to see the connections between those sinful actions and the sinful dehumanization of the person in the heart. And this is why I want you to see that every racial injustice is a result of human sin. It's not just that we have a cultural problem. It's not just because we can't all get along. It's because there's something going on in the sinful heart that needs to be cured. Racism is ultimately a sin of the heart. So before racial injustice is a social issue, it's a spiritual issue. And since it's first a spiritual issue, that makes it a sin issue. Therefore, if it's a sin issue, racial issues cannot first be dealt with via social remedy. Social remedies will always find us wanting. That's why in the United States of America... 50 years after the signing of the civil rights legislation, we're still finding ourselves having some of the same conversations. It's because as well-meaning as our attempts are, legislation will ultimately fail us. Because we cannot come up with a social solution that is perfect enough, that is good enough, to overcome something that is ultimately needed to be spiritually resolved. Now, does that mean that it's futile? No, absolutely. We should, we should try to resolve atrocities. We, we should try to bring a cure to uh, injustices. We should try to tackle those things. And sure, we should speak out on those things. But we can't expect human solutions to solve problems that only the divine can cure. Racial issues cannot first be dealt with via social remedy only. They must be tackled ultimately by the gospel. Now, here's where some good history can come in. The leaders of the civil rights movement in the United States of America knew this very well. And regrettably, it is little known today how much the Christian gospel had to play in breaking down the racial barriers in the 1960s. Civil rights leaders, as well as gospel-preaching preachers, and pastors appealed not to civics ultimately, not to reason ultimately, and not solely to the Constitution of the United States of America, 
when promoting the civil rights legislation of the 60s. They appealed instead to the conscience, to the Christian conscience. Let me give you a couple examples. Immediately following the Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court decision, in 1954, the Southern Baptist Convention Christian Life Commission reported this to the National Convention. The first need of man in human affairs is divine regeneration. It is a commonplace truth among us that righteousness among men depends upon men made righteous by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. What are they saying? They're saying that if we really want to tackle racism and we really want to tackle the prejudiced hearts that we're seeing in this country, it's not going to come first and foremost by legislation, but it's going to be by a regeneration of the heart and the mind by the power of the gospel. That's what they're saying. They go on. We must continue to preach the necessity of man's spiritual relationship to God by the new birth. And if we should ever weaken our message at this point, our strength will fail and our works decay. Then they went on. And they said the Christian's treatment of his brother in business, industry, politics, race, or any other relationship cannot be passed off as a social matter for which he has no responsibility. For you see, this was primarily the white Christian's response to racism in America in the 50s and 60s up until that point is that there are spiritual issues and there are social issues and the spiritual does not need to impact the social one iota. That was one of the primary arguments of the segregationist South. But right here, Christians are starting to recognize Relationships on earth cannot be passed off as a social matter for which he has no responsibility because the gospel permeates everything. And the gospel turns all of our world systems upside down. Now, here's where our challenge lies today. For many of my white friends, and uh, I'm tackling this head on today because we have a very diverse congregation and, and, and I, I rejoice over that. I'm tackling it head on because I believe the gospel speaks into this. One of the struggles that a lot of my white friends has is that we can very easily, although we're not, being, we're not intending to do this, we're not being malicious, and I would not put us in the same camp as many of those racist segregationists of the 50s and 60s. But in an unintended way, by just passing the buck and just saying that, well, we passed the legislation, everybody has equal rights now, I'm not sure what the big deal is. You can hear this. You can hear this from even white Christians today. That would do a disservice to our African-American brothers and sisters, our Latino brothers and sisters, and others who really do have some serious angst and anxieties in their communities. If we just pass that off and just say, things are better, get over it. What we are basically doing is the exact same thing that our forefathers were, were guilty of, of, basically saying that there's no social responsibility here and the gospel doesn't speak into our culture today like it spoke into the culture of the 50s and 60s. We have to recognize that the gospel is speaking today too. Amen? And we as Christians have got to objectively be able to say that. So every racial injustice can be traced to human sin. And we have to recognize that because we can't find a social solution to a sin sinful spiritual problem. But here's the good news, okay? Are you ready for some good news? Every racial injustice can also be overcome. It can be. It just has to be overcome by the gospel. Every, spirit, every racial injustice can be overcome by the gospel. Now, this is not to say that social legislation cannot do good. It absolutely can. There are many times where, social, socially speaking, if men aren't going to do it on their own, then laws will do the trick, okay? So we've got to recognize the place for common law, We've got to recognize the place for constitutional law, but we can't put too high of expectation on social law because it will always leave us wanting. It can't solve the problem completely. But it, the gospel can 
and the gospel will. I want to show you a couple of scriptures in the New Testament. Ladies and gentlemen, this turns everything upside down. It reframes the entire debate, and it puts Christians in a completely different argument and a completely different prophetic way of speaking into our culture in ways that Republicans or Democrats, black or white, cannot do on their own. Galatians 3, verses 27 to 28. In Galatians 3... Paul is writing to a group of Christians, many of whom used to be Jewish. They they grew up Jewish. They are racially Jews. They are nationalistically Jews. They hear the gospel and they become followers of Jesus Christ. They are what we would call today messianic Jews who renounced uh, the legal system and its requirements and professed faith in Jesus and Christ alone, faith alone, by grace alone for their salvation. But then what they wanted to do is they wanted to now look at their Gentile brethren, those who were not racially Jews, those who were not Jews by citizenship, and those Gentiles who were becoming Christians, they wanted to impose upon those Gentiles nationalistic social policies and social requirements of the Jewish people upon Gentiles and add to the gospel of Jesus Christ for their salvation. And so you had an us versus them mentality. You also had the issues of women and how these people would view women. Women were very much frowned upon, did not have the same rights and opportunities as men in Jewish society and Greek society. And then you also had issues of class Because you had the wealthy and the poor. You had all these things going on. Does that sound familiar? What the Bible shows us that in 2,000 years of human history, the human heart is the same, right? And look at what Paul says in beginning in verse 27. is a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So there's the spiritual identity, right? There's the spiritual identity. You have received the gospel. Now look at the outworkings of it in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. This is good news, ladies and gentlemen. Because here's what the gospel is doing. The gospel is not telling us that there, are, there aren't roles. The gospel is not telling us that everything in society just ceases to exist as we know it. But what Paul is showing us is that all of the divisions and dividing walls, we talk about walls a lot today. I promise you this is only, uh, this is only coincidental, okay? Just let the gospel speak in where the gospel is speaking in. I'm not speaking into any certain presidential candidate or a president-elect, okay? I'm just not. But all of the walls that human beings place up to divide us, whether it be on gender, class, race, or nation, Paul says the gospel knocks The gospel blows up the system. And you're all on equal ground now. And you're all brothers and sisters. Very quickly, let's go through the list here. The gospel overcomes racism. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither Chinese nor American nor Mexican nor Brazilian. It doesn't matter if you're from the European continent, the Asian continent, the African continent, or one of the Americas. There, the gospel overcomes racism. Every tribe, nation, tongue on earth is equal at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. Number two, the gospel overcomes classism. There is neither slave nor free. Now, the Bible gets a lot of flack because the gospel tells Christian slaves in the New Testament and how to treat and respect their masters. And and, and And there are a lot of opponents of Christianity say, this is why I can never be a Christian because the Christian supports slavery. Do not mistake in this, okay? The Bible is an historical document. The Bible was written during the first century. The Bible was written during first century Greco-Roman culture. In Greco-Roman culture, slavery was rampant. 
The Bible was never written. The Christianity was never launched from Jesus to be a political movement. The gospel was never given to us so that we could overtake kings and kingdoms and put forth theocracies, contrary to some of our American beliefs. What the Bible is doing is speaking into sinful man and telling us how we should act and behave towards one another within those systems. Now, that's not endorsing those systems. It's saying that, historically speaking, let's not forget that the Bible was written during a specific time to a specific people, and it was God's word to them before it ever became God's word to us. But what Paul does here is where there was prejudice and where there was strife or whether there was need for reconciliation because of the slave or the free, you're getting to the heart really of class here. Because this wasn't primary a racial thing. It was really a class deal. If you were a slave in the New Testament, it was very different than 19th century American slavery. It was really just part of kind of like a caste system that we would know throughout history. And it wasn't an issue based on race as much as it was just on social class and social standing. And Paul is showing us that not only does the gospel knock down the walls of racism, it also knocks down the walls of classism. That whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're born with means or whether you're born with nothing, the gospel is for you. And you are not, you're not prohibited from coming towards Jesus. We're all on equal ground. We may not have an equal bank account. We may not have equal intellectual ability. We may not have equal uh, social ability to, to contribute towards society. But we are equal at the foot of the cross in God's eyes, regardless of class. The gospel also overcomes sexism. There's neither male nor female. I could show you examples in Jesus' ministry of how Jesus welcomes women at the table. He welcomes Jesus to be, uh, Jesus welcomes women to be a part of his ministry. He actually allows in his sovereignty for it to be women who actually discover that he is risen for the first time and actually commissions those women to go and proclaim it and tell everybody that I'm alive after death. You see, the gospel welcomes us in regardless of gender. The gospel doesn't suppress us because of gender. The gospel overcomes sexism. And ultimately, the gospel overcomes nationalism. Now, I'm throwing this one in here because with the Jewish people, it was very closely tied. It wasn't just their race. It was also their national identity. And if you really want to see this on full display, you can look at the book of Jonah. We don't have time to go there this morning, but just write that down. Read the book of Jonah through fresh eyes. The ultimate sin of Jonah's heart was not disobedience. It was not because he didn't want to go to proclaim the gospel, God's good news, to a pagan city of Nineveh. The ultimate sin of Jonah's heart was nationalism and racism because these were the avowed enemies of God, the Ninevites. They were enemies of God's people. They were not a national threat to God's people. And God says, go proclaim to them the good news of my salvation. And Jonah basically says, God can bless Israel. God can bless me. But literally, I'll be damned before I let Israel's enemies hear this good news of God's salvation. That's what's at play in the book of Jonah. And the gospel overcomes even our nationalism. And we as Americans today, especially in the heat of this whole election season, need to hear that loudly and clearly. God has no favored nation on planet Earth. God is creating a new nation on planet Earth called the redeemed, the elect, those who are born again in Jesus Christ. That's his nation. Every racial injustice can be overcome by the gospel. The gospel overcomes racism, classism, sexism, and nationalism. I want you to see another radical scripture here. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2 and look at what the gospel does. This is one of my favorite paragraphs in the New Testament. And guys, are you with me? If you've checked out, come back with me, okay? You with me? Amen? Amen. Here's the good, good news for our society. Because right now as I'm looking out and I'm looking at the strife and I'm looking at the argument and I'm looking at the protests and I'm looking at all the solutions that we're trying to come up with, I promise you they're on a fast track to failure. 
We don't know how to talk to each other anymore. We can't even engage with one another anymore. Let me show you the hope of the gospel. This is what will get us there, okay? Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Remember everything I just told you about the church at Galatia? Well, it was spreading. It was very rampant in the church at Ephesus as well. And Paul shares with us very similar truths here, but he just fleshes it out a little bit more for us. Verse 11, chapter 2, Ephesians. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh. By the way, that's all of us in this room. See, it doesn't matter what your lineage is, what your ethnicity is in this room. You fall into this category. So we're all together on this. At one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You see, the Jewish people had a term of derision for everybody who was not Jewish. And that derision was, you uncircumcised. You can think of the derogatory language that we use for one another, racially speaking, today. This would fall in a similar camp. And so what their term of derision was, you're an uncircumcised one, meaning that you're outside the fold of God, meaning you're not a part of God's nation, Israel, from the Old Testament. And the Jewish believers were using this as a weapon against their Gentile uh, cohorts, but then the unredeemed Jewish people were also using this term as a term of derision for anybody else who was not Jewish. And so Paul is like putting it out just there for us in in very stark letters that you once were the outcast. You once were the minority. You, You once were the immigrant. You were the foreigner. You were the spiritual refugee is what he's saying. And you spiritually had no hope in the world. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. But that all-important theological word, but, verse 13, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Here are two more truths that we see in how every racial injustice can be overcome by the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ will unite all races to God. There is not a white gospel, a black gospel, a brown gospel, a red gospel. It does not matter. There is one gospel. Paul tells us here that he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. And that first wall of hostility is mainly between us as human beings and God Almighty. Because the Bible says because of our sin, we were enemies of God. And so there was a wall of hostility between all of us and God. And Paul says that the gospel will unite all races to God. It doesn't matter where we've come from because every one of us has hostility towards God and God will break that down through his gospel. But the second truth that we see here is that the gospel will unite all races to one another. I love the language in this passage of breaking down the walls of hostility. In verse 15, he says that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Here is the radical truth for the United States of America today. We define ourselves by our ethnicity, don't we? You are your race. We have convinced ourselves that our ethnicity, our race, our language... The color of our skin is who I am. The Bible says you are a human being created in the image of God. 
That's who you are. And if you are in Jesus Christ, your identity now is you are a son or a daughter of the Most High God. That's your identity. The color of your skin, your ethnicity, is simply a part of who you are on this planet. But it doesn't define you. I find it so ironic that we in society have been trying for decades to recognize the fact that just as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said that we want to be a society that judges a man or judges a woman on the content of their character and not the color of their skin, but yet we have created a society today that defines ourselves through the lenses of our race. 50 or 60 years later, we're now going against what Dr. King said. Because we're now finding our identity in our race rather than in who we are internally. You see, if we really start to think about these things, we don't really believe the things we say. We don't really believe the things that we even attach ourselves to societally. What the gospel is doing, ladies and gentlemen, this is the radical truth for us. Is that race doesn't define us. We are not our ethnicity. But the radical part is that God is taking the two, or the ten, or the twenty, and he's making all of us into one new man. You've heard me say this before, that in the eyes of God, there are only two races. There's the race of Jesus, and there's the race of the world. The race of Jesus has skin colors from a multiplicity of nations. The race of the world also has skin colors from a whole plethora of nations. But the race of Jesus, what he's doing is he's taking all of the believers who repent of their sins, even including the sins of racism and prejudice, and he's making us into a new race of people with a new bloodline. And it's not an earthly bloodline. It's not a familial bloodline. It's not an ethnic bloodline. It's the bloodline of the cross. And that is the good news to our society that is being just wrecked apart by racial issues today. The gospel will unite all races to one another. I love what Russell Moore has to say in response to this passage. He says, speaking of these first century Christians, it would have been relatively uncontroversial to plant Gentile Christian churches and Messianic Jewish Christian synagogues across the first century Roman Empire. What was controversial was one community with one people, all claiming one spirit, one king, one inheritance, and one identity in Jesus Christ. That's the radical nature of the gospel, church. That's the great message that we have to tell our friends and our roommates and our family members who are struggling through these racial divides today. Is that God is creating this new race and we all come together with this rainbow of skin color and diversity of heritages. And we're learning from each other while at the same time sharing one allegiance to one king and one new citizenship in heaven. And it's that citizenship that now informs everything about my earthly one. That's good news. You see how the gospel speaks into everything there is no stone on earth of human society that God has left unturned where this gospel will not permeate and heal and be made new again. Now, I got one last place I want to take us to. And if you'll just bear with me for a few more minutes here, because this is important as we think about how to put this into practice. So every human life has dignity because of God. Every racial injustice is a result of human sin. And every racial injustice can be overcome by the gospel. Now, we as people who have been overcome by the gospel, we now are ambassadors. Here's our duty. Every Christian is empowered to be an ambassador of reconciliation. We are empowered to be an ambassador of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is talking about the reconciliation that God has brought to us individually by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by forgiving us of our sins and make, making us right with God again. And then look what he says in 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 17. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, primarily what he's speaking about here is gospel reconciliation of the human heart. But then he goes on. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, it is not a stretch. Theologically, exegetically, hermeneutically, from this text to extrapolate. That as we apply this gospel of reconciliation, this ministry of reconciliation in preaching God's gospel to the lost world, that as it, per, as it pertains to racial issues, that is a part of this gospel of reconciliation. That we should be speaking the gospel into racial injustice because racial injustice is sinful. Not so that we can replace the Christian gospel with a social gospel, but so that the Christian gospel informs what sociology should be taking place. Let's apply the gospel to our relationships and to our communities and be what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 9, peacemakers. Rather than inciting more racial tensions or stoking the flames of one side or the other, Christians should be peacemakers. We should be bridge builders. We should be calling out both sides when they're wrong. Because when we only go to one side, we lose moral credibility. Because we show and reveal our biases. The gospel shows how everybody is wrong. Now here are five things. I'm going to go through these fairly quickly. That I believe that we can do to put into practice what we've looked at theologically today. So here's what the, where practice meshes with theology. Number one, we must seek to understand others before being understood. We must seek to understand others before being understood. Right now, if you were to pull up your Facebook page or your Twitter feed, there are a lot of people who just want to be understood. And some of us are even in the room right now. Because everybody else is a bigot. Everybody else is wrong. Everybody else is closed-minded. Everybody else just needs to see the world through my lens. We are a people who just want to be understood, and we want to shout down those with whom we have disagreements. The gospel says we need to seek to understand. We need to seek to understand someone else's point of view. If you are an African-American who grew up in an inner city or you're a Latino who grew up in an inner city, you have a very different experience than someone who might be African-American, Latino, or white who grew up in the suburbs in a nice subdivision. We start seeing that some of these things aren't as racially motivated as they are by class because class informs our experiences as much as race. And so what we need to do, whether we are that suburban type person or that inner city type person, is we need to seek to understand someone else's point of view and their lives and where they're coming from. This is from both sides. We all need to understand each other better. And in order to do that, sometimes, can I just say it? We should just shut up and listen. We should just shut up and listen and ask people why. Why do you feel that way? Why do you view the world that way? Help me understand. And rather than indict, let's inform. We must seek to understand others before being understood. Number two, we must acknowledge the existence of racial sins. We must acknowledge the existence of racial sins. Now, it's very easy for us to jump here to uh, the the situation at hand. Let's just take the Black Lives Matter movement for a moment. Let's take the instances of the, the police shootings and the things that are going on with that strife. For most of us in here who come from a white background, our first intuition does not need to automatically be to defend the police. Our first intuition does not need to be to get on our political posturing. 
our first response should be, absolutely, there are instances of racial sin in this country. There just are. Now, is it as bad as it was 50 years ago? Absolutely not. And for those who are saying that, you're not accurately representing the facts, and you're not doing your side of the story justice. You're not helping your side when you say things like that. Obviously, we are better. 50 years ago, this congregation would not look like it does. 50 years ago, the man sitting in the White House would not be sitting in the White House. Of course, things are not as bad as they used to be. But are they perfect? No, they're not. There are real instances of racial injustice out there. And we, as people, we've got to recognize that and we have to admit that. But we also have to recognize that all of racism is not just from white people. Can I say that? In a safe environment? The reality is every one of us has prejudice in our heart. We do. Prejudice isn't a white issue. Prejudice is a human issue. Every one of us has prejudices in our heart for some group of people, regardless of whether it's political, racially motivated, but we have it. I remember an instance when I was a kid. I grew up in Mississippi. I grew up in integrated Mississippi, but it still had a lot of serious issues, still does today. And uh, I remember an experience that will always sit with me for life. I can tell you as best as I knew, as best as I tried, I really, I really didn't set out to have animosity in my heart towards African Americans. I had a lot of close friends who were, who were black in my community, and uh, it was one of the joys of living in an integrated society. We learned how to get along. It was our parents a lot of times who had the problems, but, they, but the kids usually figured it out. But I remember getting on the school bus one day. I was the last stop on the bus route. And so you can imagine what that's like, being the kid who's getting on the bus with 40 or 50 kids already on the bus, and you're already struggling to find a seat. And I had a very unique bus route because I lived in a pretty poor neighborhood, and, uh, and a majority of my, my school bus were African Americans. And my brother and I, along with one other kid, were the only three white kids on the school bus. And I remember getting on the school bus one day. I, I must have been about 10 or 11 years old. And I sat down next to a, a young African-American girl. It was the only place on the bus to sit that morning. And she looked at me. I'll never forget these words. She said to me, get out of my seat. I'm not sitting with no honky. And I'd, I've always been the kind of kid who wanted to play it cool. And so I just sat there. I didn't engage her. I just tried to ignore it and just move on. It was a very short bus ride. And she looked at me and she said, hey, white boy, you must be deaf. I said, I'm not sitting with no honky. And what she did is she turned around on the seat and she put her back against the wall of the bus and she planted her two legs into my thigh and she kicked me out of the seat onto the floor. I made it to school. There was no fight that broke out. I exercised restraint and self-control. I never said a word about it. I didn't report it. I didn't tell anybody. There is real racial sin. And it is not relegated to one race or another. Every one of us has prejudices in our heart from a whole myriad of places. And we need to recognize that and acknowledge that. Number three. We must resist being blinded by our biases. Elections communicate to us that we need to go and align ourselves with our respective tribes. So when you think about the police issue and the policings, we have the police side and we have the African-American side normally. That's how it normally plays out blanketed in this country. We have the conservative side. We have the liberal side. Um, now we have the Black Lives Matter movement, and we have other movements. And what we are so tempted to do as people is we align ourselves and our tribes, and we cannot see anything but that tribe's point of view. What we as Christians have got to be is we've got to be people of truth. We've got to be fact-based people. We cannot be people that just simply appeal to emotion and go attach ourselves to the people that we agree with and believe in, no matter whether they're right or wrong. The Black Lives Matter movement have a, it has a lot of things that, for the African-American community, is a lot of help, and it's a voice for them. And there are some things that we can't just say it's all bad or it's all wrong. 
But we also can't say that they never say anything or never do anything that's, that's wrong. I, I mean, when, when you are chanting in the streets in Minneapolis, pigs in a blanket, fry them like bacon. That's atrocious. And when, when three police officers are shot and killed in Baton Rouge and they tweet out three more pigs killed in Baton Rouge today and gloating over the deaths of someone's dad or someone's husband or someone's son. We cannot justify bad behavior by appealing to other bad behavior. And we do this on the other side as well. We can't just automatically defend cops just blanketed because we know that there are instances of abuse. We know that. And we have to recognize that. We cannot be blinded by our biases. The gospel is not biased. The gospel offends every one of us. And gospel-loving people have got to be willing to speak on those issues. Number four, we must extend to each other grace and mercy. We've got to give each other some leeway, okay? Uh, I was speaking at a, at, a, uh, at a collegiate event a couple of weeks ago, and I was speaking on the gospel and politics. It was very similar to the message I did here a few weeks ago on the election. And at the very end of the conversation, um, I found out that one of the students there, um, who was white, said today was a great talk, um, I guess. He, he lost me along the way because it just proves that he's just coming from his place of white privilege. Without knowing me or knowing my background, my parents divorced when I was two. I was raised by my grandparents in the 800-square-foot box. We could actually see the dirt uh, ground underneath the holes in our kitchen floor. I grew up very poor. I remember going to the grocery store with food stamps with my grandmother, and I was so embarrassed and always so worried that one of my friends from school would see us because I didn't want to be outed in that way. My first job was in... Uh, a grocery store in the African-American part of town where my dad was the produce manager of that store. And I was a clerk where I cashed people out, and I was a stock boy. Almost 90% of the clientele of that store was African-American, and almost all the other workers in the store were African-American. I've lived in the midst of minorities my entire life. I myself grew up in abject poverty. To simply make an unfair leap of saying that I'm just speaking from a place of white privilege is number one it's an affront to my heritage number two it's an offense to me because you don't even know me and you're making accusations against me ladies and gentlemen we have to give each other mercy and grace we got to cut each other some slack just because i'm born white or someone else is born white and our fathers or our grandfathers or our great grandfathers participated in some atrocities against minorities doesn't automatically make us the enemy. And just because someone is African-American or Latino or has skin color different from yours doesn't automatically make them a robber, a murderer, or a gang member. We need to cut each other some slack. And just because we don't use the politically correct language of the day because it's really hard to keep up, and we don't use the right terminology in referring to each other's cultures, doesn't make us a racist. It just means that there's more that we need to learn about each other. So let's show each other mercy and grace as the body of Christ. And as we do that, let's show the world how to do that as well. Lastly, this. And here's where we need to bring it home. We must repent of our own sins of prejudice. Because you see, it's easy to point our fingers at the groups of people with whom we disagree. It's easy to find the loudest, most offensive voices in our culture and say they're wrong while automatically assuming that we're always in the right. When we stand before God one day, He's not going to hold us accountable based upon what sociology did. He's not going to hold us accountable to what the U.S. Constitution said, what the United States Congress did, or what the President of the United States did. He's not going to judge us based on how racist our neighbor was. He's going to judge us based on what our heart was. And so this morning, one of the best places for us to start if we really want to tackle the issues of human dignity and race 
and racial reconciliation, we want to tackle those things well. Let's come before God this morning and repent of our own prejudices and confess them not just as sins against humanity, but let's confess them as sins against God. Because as we began with, every human life has dignity and value. All lives matter because of God, because we're created in his image. Let's pray as a body this morning. And let's pray also for our country, for our neighborhoods. And then let's sing in response in joy of what God has done through Jesus Christ in bringing a people who once were outsiders, who once were the foreigners, who once were the refugees. And he has made us sons and daughters, princes and princesses in the kingdom of his beloved son. Father, thank you today for the glorious reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we as Christians know it because we've experienced it and we preach it. And Father, in all the places where we are tempted to believe society's lies about race and human dignity versus what you say, I pray that you would expose those in our hearts today. And Father, I pray that rather than suppressing the truth of the scriptures this morning, that we would embrace them. And then I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and fill us, change our minds, change our hearts, transform us so that we would more intimately reflect and specifically reflect the radical nature of Jesus. I pray that the love and the unity, the understanding and the grace and mercy that we extend to each other in the body, I pray, Father, that it would just permeate our relationships, our friendships, our families, our workplaces, our schools, and that we would start showing our friends and our families in this world what it means to truly be racially united. Because our Savior, who himself was a foreigner in a strange land, has taken all of these foreigners, all of these refugees, all of these religious minorities, and yes, even including me, and you have brought us together to form a new race, a new people for yourself. Father, I stand in awe. I pray for our country. I pray that the gospel would get to more hearts. And as you change and regenerate hearts, I pray that you would change culture. And Father, we repent of all the attempts that we try to come at it from the opposite way. And we pray all these things because of our Savior Jesus. Amen.